welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI at Oxford University that examines America from the outside in. I'm Grace Mallon, and I'm guest presenting this episode. It's an election unlike any we've ever experienced before in the middle of a pandemic. And still voters turned out in record numbers. When we talk about American politics and the American government, we're normally thinking of Washington, D.C., the two houses of Congress, the Supreme Court, and especially the presidential elections that have people glued to their smartphones and TV screens around the world once every four years. But as complicated as Washington's politics can seem to an outsider, they represent only one part of American political life. Another layer of complexity comes from the phenomenon of federalism, the division of power in the United States between the federal government in Washington and 50 individual state governments. The existence of state and local governments alongside a national government isn't unique to the United States. Many other countries also have a federal structure, where state governments have the power to legislate on certain issues, while authority over other policy areas belongs to the federal government. What makes the United States somewhat special is the extent to which conflict over the nature of federalism and the respective powers of the state and federal governments, has shaped its history over the last 250 years. At the heart of this conflict is the idea of states' rights, the idea that the rights of state governments are under threat from the ever-expanding influence of the federal government. In the 21st century, the language of states' rights has dominated debates around issues like gun control, same-sex marriage and healthcare regulation. Anti-abortion campaigners have also appealed to the idea of states' rights, claiming that the US Supreme Court's interventions have denied state governments their right to regulate reproductive health care. All right, let's go now to Washington, D.C., where the future of abortion rights will go before the U.S. Supreme Court. Weeks after the justices heard arguments on a Texas abortion law on which they have yet to make a decision, now another pivotal case just days away. Justices will hear arguments Wednesday over a Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks. It's a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. This week, the debate over abortion regulation could come to a head as the Supreme Court hears the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This case, which arises from a Mississippi law banning abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, may give the court the opportunity to strike down existing federal protections for abortion rights. In this episode, I'm talking to two historians about the history of conflict over state powers and how that history plays into today's arguments about who should have ultimate control over abortion regulation and other controversial questions of public policy. I am Gary Gerstel, Mellon Professor of American History at the University of Cambridge. Gary Gerstel, the Paul Mellon Professor of American History at Cambridge University and author of Liberty and Coercion, The Paradox of American Government from the Founding to the Present. And Mary Ziegler, the Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State University College of Law and the author of Abortion and the Law in America. I began by asking Gary, what did the division of power between the state and federal governments look like in the founding era of the United States? Well, America at its origins was very suspicious of centralized government power if it looked anything like the government of George III against whom the United States had fought a war for independence 
and made a revolution to establish a republic. And suspicion of government was so high that decisions were made to limit the power of the central state, to fragment it between three branches of government, to set up a system of checks and balances to make sure that no portion of government would get too powerful. The Constitution of the United States also gave to the federal government only those powers strictly enumerated, meaning noted in the Constitution. And that becomes one of the defining characteristics of the American governing system, uh, establishing limits on the deployment of central government power. And this also becomes encoded in the political culture, the DNA culture of American society. Uh, And so many Americans throughout the 19th and 20th century define their politics and define their fear of tyranny in terms of the fear of central government power. I think of the New Hampshire license plate, live free or die. It refers not to living free of corporate power or monopoly private power. It means living free of centralized government power. This rhetoric is present throughout American history, and it stands in sharp distinction to attitudes toward centralized government power in Britain or on the continent. What's so interesting about America and what was so interesting about doing my book, Liberty and Coercion, is that the states operate according to a different theory of power. Uh, No effort was made by the central constitution to fragment their power. The famous Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the constitutions, which is one of the great documents upholding civil liberties produced in the 18th, 19th, and we might even say 20th century, those amendments guaranteeing individual rights against government power very quickly in the early 19th century are interpreted by the courts to mean that the power being limited in terms of exercise of influence over individuals applies only to the central government and not to the states, that the Bill of Rights does not is not to shape state governance. Now, states were free to adopt their own Bill of Rights. Many did in some form or another. But it's very significant that the Supreme Court in the early 19th century, when considering the First Amendment, decides to interpret it literally. And that First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law limiting the freedom of speech. And that meant Congress should make no law, but it said nothing about what state legislatures could and cannot do in terms of restricting freedom of speech. And it's not until the 20th century, through a long, arduous legal process called incorporation, that states are gradually, uh, but uh, ultimately comprehensively brought under the Bill of Rights to place some limitation on their power. And states became accustomed to exercising quite extraordinary power over their citizenry. Most slave law was state law, all kinds of laws governing roles for men and women, uh, going to the theater, whether there would be freedom of religion in particular states. It was almost as if these states were operating in a different polity or a different political universe than the central government. And that is ultimately the paradox that I devote myself to studying and explicating in liberty and coercion. So states 
exercise this extraordinary range of powers over the people who live within those states. State governments exercise uh, powers over morality. They they regulate gender roles. Um, they regulate religion and speech um, and all these other uh, areas that the federal government doesn't actually touch all that much. But over the course of the first uh, century of the United States after the revolution, this language of states' rights, this sense, this paranoia about the threat of federal power to state power um, gradually grows. But where does this idea of states' rights come from? When is it invented? And what is its political purpose? It is invented in the early 19th century, and it is invented to defend the rights and prerogatives of states against what many states consider to be unfair encroachment of the federal government upon their sphere of influence. The central government has major powers as a result of the Constitution. It prints money. It raises armies. It acquires and disposes of territories. And one of the crucial questions in its acquisition and disposal of territories is whether the states to be carved out of those territories are going to become free states or slave states. So in this context, the southern states that have slave systems, the question that is on their minds is if things don't go their way and they are faced with the elimination of slavery, do they have a right of secession? Uh, do they have a right of nullification? Uh, do states have the right to nullify a federal law that they don't agree with, that they feel touches on an aspect of state politics that they feel is the province of the state alone? This issue first rears its head in regard to a tariff that John C. Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, does not like. And he proclaims in the early 1830s that South Carolina has a right of nullification, which means it has the right to nullify a law that the federal government has passed. He is overruled by President Jackson, even though President Andrew Jackson is another Southerner. But the issue of nullification remains live, and it's not simply a matter of will this law here and there be nullified, but if presidents and executive power and the power of the federal, federal government overrules what states can and cannot do, Do can these states exercise the right of secession? And this raises the question of the formation of the United States in the 1780s and 1790s. Was it a contract among states to give up their powers under certain conditions? Or was this moment of national consolidation one in which the people of the United States were assenting to a constitutional form of government, not the state governments themselves? And if the latter was the case, then no individual state would have the right of secession. 
So states, the phrase states' rights comes to embody the principle of nullification and ultimately the principle of secession of leaving the union if a grasping central government was felt to be interfering unduly with powers that were rightfully theirs. And it comes by the 1840s and 1850s to focus overwhelmingly on the issue of slavery as slave owners in the southern states begin to feel their hold on federal power is perhaps slipping from their grasp. And it, and the only way in which they can preserve slavery over the long term would be to secede from the Union. And so to declare for and against uh, states' rights was to say something profound about your position in regard not simply to the rights of states, but to the question of whether America was to be a racially egalitarian republic or a white supremacist one. So states' rights is this incredibly uh, loaded term. It has all of this baggage. It's the furthest thing you could imagine almost from a from a politically neutral statement about the correct balance of power between the state and federal governments in the United States. And obviously, after the American Civil War, that balance of power does shift um, across the period between Reconstruction and through the New Deal. The powers of the federal government do, in fact, expand and the scope of, of federal regulation is expanded. But at the same time, through that period, the states retain a lot of powers, uh, a huge, a huge range of powers. Uh, from a, certainly from a British perspective, where we have a unitary state that sort of controls um, all of these things, this, the state governments continue to retain a considerable amount of coercive power over individuals and the right to regulate um, a number of different areas um, of sort of social organisation. Um, and it's on that question that I wanted to turn to Mary and ask about one area in which states um, have a traditionally strong presence, which is the regulation of the public welfare, which comes to encompass all kinds of uh, of important areas of life. And one of those areas is healthcare. Um, and I wanted to ask Mary, as our, as our women's reproductive healthcare expert, about the background to state control of healthcare and um, of women's reproductive healthcare, especially. Yeah, I mean, so this was an area um, that had been more or less unregulated for some time in the United States, not particularly an area where you would have seen calls for states' rights. So if you look, for example, to colonial era United States, um, whether you're thinking about abortion or contraception, uh, there wasn't really um, much regulation at all, in part because there may have been no reliable way to establish that a pregnancy took place until there was fetal movement. Um, there were clearly lots of examples of people using what we would consider contraceptive remedies or abortifacients. There were advice manuals. Um, this was true both, of course, of Native Americans as well as people um, who had immigrated here 
And I think when you really see an uptick in this being an issue of regulation is really in the late 19th century. But even then, there wasn't a sense that this was something that states should do as opposed to the federal government until later. So, for example, um, Anthony Comstock, who was a great kind of anti-vice crusader who was responsible for a law limiting whether obscene materials, as Comstock would have framed it, could be put in the national mails, that was a federal law, and no one really thought that that was inappropriate at the time. Um, states, of course, also acted to ban abortion at roughly the same time that the Comstock Act passed in the aftermath of the Civil War. But again, this was not really framed as something that should be an issue of states' rights until after the Supreme Court intervened. And Comstock's situation of, of sort of restoring the morality of um, young men, particularly Civil War veterans, whom Comstock and others believed had sort of succumbed to the temptations of pornography and um, prostitution. In the case of abortion bans, it was uh, doctors, particularly the fledgling American Medical Association, arguing that abortion had um, not only taken human lives, as the founders of the American Medical Association would put it, but also it sort of weakened the racial stock of the nation. But in neither case was there really a strong sense that this was something states should be doing versus the federal government. It was more just a sort of moral crisis and all hands should be on deck to address it. You, After, I think, the Supreme Court gets involved, um, there's a states' rights discourse that emerges that I think is not entirely sincere, right? There was a long tradition, as Gary mentioned, of invoking states' rights that the anti-abortion movement tapped into to reframe what had really been um, a movement to establish a single national answer on abortion, which was a national ban on abortion, um, and to wield the power of an expanded muscular federal government to establish that ban. That was that story was sort of buried in favor of a states' rights narrative that didn't describe either really the history of abortion regulation or the history of anti-abortion organizing, which had had really nothing to do with that. So I think it was something we see quite often in United States history, which is the opportunistic use of states' rights arguments, um, tapping into a, a tradition that's quite powerful rhetorically, but doesn't always reflect the ultimate ambitions of a movement, which was certainly true in the United States when it came to abortion and reproductive health. We have these appeals uh, to states' rights um, that are not really based in any sort of respectable legal theory as such, but that are essentially opportunistic after Roe v. Wade and the sort of 1970s federal uh, Supreme Court intervention into the abortion question. Um, and I wanted to ask you, so looking at looking at actually just the sort of introduction to your book, Abortion and the Law, I was very struck by the timeline of abortion regulation um, and how there seems to be sort of a swing back and forth between state uh, state regulation of abortion, a sort of appeals to the up to the federal courts, federal courts sort of reaction to that. And I wanted to ask if you could sort of comment on how federalism um, and the division of power between the state and federal governments has sort of affected or that conversation between the state and federal governments has affected access to abortion, abortion rights um, in the United States since Roe v. Wade? Yeah, I think there are two ways. I mean, so there's been a tremendously powerful rhetorical argument that's, I think, arguably the most important basis that anti-abortion leaders, whether they're actually in the federal government or in grassroots movements, have demanded the overruling of Roe. And that argument centers on states' rights, essentially that this is something that constitutionally should be left to the states. 
and that the Supreme Court was wrong to intervene and inject itself into a place it didn't belong. Um, and then there, there are actually sort of causal historical arguments that flow from this, essentially that had the Supreme Court not intervened and had this been resolved by the states, as traditionally would have been the case, there would be no polarization around the abortion issue. The states would reach compromises that would be satisfying, at least to those within state boundaries and potentially even nationally. So there's an argument both that it's it's inappropriate and anti-democratic for the Supreme Court to intervene and that it caused polarization and dysfunction that the Supreme Court chose to ignore that advice. There's also just the sort of dynamics of how uh, abortion challenges have operated. So initially, I think both social movements, the anti-abortion movement and the abortion rights movement, envisaged that this would be a federal solution, right? So the abortion rights movement was hoping that the Supreme Court would recognize the right to choose abortion, that it would then safeguard um, against state and federal interference. The anti-abortion movement was hoping that the Supreme Court would recognize fetal personhood in the 14th Amendment and thereby declare abortion unconstitutional. So essentially, again, taking it away from the states, but in a quite different way. Um, when the anti-abortion movement recognized that it's impossible to amend the Constitution in the United States, I mean, this seems just true as a general statement, um, they began instead uh, to fall back on the kinds of incremental restrictions that they had been using as a stopgap while they fought for a constitutional amendment, perhaps the most famous being um, the Hyde Amendment, which was a federal law. It has state equivalents that limit um, Medicaid reimbursement, Medicaid, of course, being the federal state program for low-income Americans, uh, limiting Medicaid reimbursement for abortion. So those laws that had become a way to kind of keep the abortion rate down or limit abortion access in the short term became part of a new states' rights strategy, where essentially states would pass really a kind of never-ending stream of restrictions that anti-abortion lawyers would then defend before the Supreme Court. Um, the strategy was both to, of course, limit access to keep the abortion rate down, um, but also to make the idea that there was an abortion right an increasing contradiction in terms, right? That if you had a right to abortion, but you had to wait a certain amount of time or you had to clear certain hurdles or you had to get certain person's consent or certain procedures were off limits or certain reasons were out of bounds, that eventually there would be so little of an abortion right remaining that it would be not particularly difficult to convince the Supreme Court to get rid of whatever remained. And so th that really became the strategy. And that strategy, of course, had tremendous consequences outside the context of abortion and even states' rights because it made control of the U.S. Supreme Court um, arguably the most important issue to a subset of conservative voters, um, which, of course, changed both how Supreme Court nominations functioned um, and it changed uh, to some degree um, how presidential elections are contested. People who would certainly not have voted for certain candidates often were willing to do so if they felt that the Supreme Court would look the way they wanted and vindicate the kind of state-driven strategies we've been discussing. So as Mary mentioned earlier in um, in the episode, the Supreme Court is, is getting very active on um, abortion questions and on the question. Um, and, and by active, um, we actually mean inactive. It is it is essentially throwing back to the states um, certain issues, um, including uh, including abortion rights, um, that it had formerly taken um, something uh, more of an interest in. And I wanted to sort of discuss alongside the abortion question, some of the other areas of policy where um, states' rights is in the 21st century a particularly sort of significant concept, even if an opportunistic um, 
concept uh, that is used in these debates. And Gary, I wanted to to ask you how you see um, how you see states' rights playing into sort of contemporary political debates. Well, states' rights. I, I think Mary was right to talk about the opportunistic nature of state rights that it can be used as a rallying cry for various purposes. Uh, let me say two things. First, I want to focus on the 1960s for a moment as as a fundamental moment when states' rights in America changes. And what I mean by that is finally in the 1960s, the states are fully or close to fully incorporated under the Bill of Rights, uh, which means the provisions of the Bill of Rights are made incumbent upon state governments as well as the federal government. The anger at the central government among conservatives today has to do with that transition in the 1960s, which really marks a fundamental fundamental transition in American life. This is the Warren Court. Uh, the judges of the Warren Court were determined for reasons, I think, of social justice to make sure that the Bill of Rights was the law of the entire land and not just the law govern- governing the the federal government. Uh, and this represented a rupture in terms of how America had been governed for the previous 150 years. Uh, and it has produced a profound backlash that can still be felt in the 21st century. It has meant, and this is my second point, that the meaning of states' rights in the post-war period can have a range of meanings that were harder to access when states' rights were, were code words for white supremacy and slavery. The United States faces in the 21st century the very real possibility that a minority Republican Party will fasten its hold permanently or for very long stretches of time on the central government uh, because of uh, gerrymandering, uh, because uh, the election for president and for the Senate uh, is heavily weighted to more rural, less populated areas, which discriminates against the vast populations that live on the two coasts. And it's not hard to imagine the United States um, living under a regime where the Supreme Court is under the control of conservatives, the Senate is under control of conservatives, the presidency is under control of conservatives. The question then becomes for progressives, what do you do in a situation like that? And one of the things you can do is go to the states. And we've seen this process underway. If we look at the history of gay marriage, this has been driven in states. If we look at the history of minimum wage laws, this is being driven by states. If we look at hope for control of emissions, clean air and clean water, here are the actions of of California, given its size and the number of vehicles on the road and the degree to which American automobile companies have to orient themselves to what is going on in California. California offers an example of hope. During a presidency where the president chose to largely pretend that the coronavirus was not a real threat, 
the serious public health crusade and where the CDC was compromised uh, utterly as a federal institution, the road to public health and safety led through states and particular governors. And this recalls an older tradition that has always been there, but it has been harder to see because of the association of states' rights with slavery and white supremacy. And that is the tradition of Louis Brandeis, uh, one of America's great progressives and one of the great jurists to sit on the Supreme Court, who in a decision in the early 30s, I believe, referred to the states as laboratories of democracy. And what he meant by that is there were advantages to the federal system in that a new social policy or a new environmental policy or a new marriage policy that involved a wholesale change in American life. Perhaps it was best tried out on a state level first. Uh, and this tradition, which has flown largely under the radar, uh, has particular meaning in the 21st century as progressives face the very real possibility that the federal government that they have long regarded as their ace in the hole becomes captured for very long stretches of time by conservative forces that they oppose. So it's not out of the question that the great proponents of states' rights by the middle decades of the 21st century will be those on the left rather than those on the right. And that will, will represent something of a stunning historical reversal. Uh, but it takes advantage of a division between powers given to the states and powers given to the central government that despite adjustments in the relative power going to each branch, that division remains and it becomes a safety valve of sorts for those who feel excluded from one level of governance altogether. This, I think, was actually part of the original intention of the framers of the Constitution uh, to provide an area of experimentation uh, and diversity in American life out of the conviction that this over the long term might be good. It didn't turn out that way for a long period of time because states' rights were captured by slave owners and then by white supremacists. But it may be the case that this be, that state that states become the most important arena for progressives over the next twenty or thirty years, and that goes to show you uh, how unending a story, interesting story, American history is and shall remain. A neat subversion of the traditional uh, vision of state power in the United States. Mary, how do you feel that that vision from Gary um, applies to the question of uh, the, the ongoing abortion debate? We've already seen this in progressive states. Some progressive states do fund abortion care for low-income patients when they have no obligation to do so under the federal government. Um, or under federal law. And we've seen states' Supreme Courts. States, of course, as Gary mentioned, have their own constitutions. Um, some states' Supreme Courts have recognized more expansive rights, um, not necessarily just to abortion, but to other forms of health care as well, under state constitutions. And I think we've seen states signal that they're going to be interested not only in expanding access to these forms of, of care in their own states, but potentially in expanding access to people from out of state. So um, another area we're going to see conflicts on the state's rights is what lawyers would consider sort of conflicts of law. So if 
California makes available abortion medication or makes available um, a doctor to someone from out of state, and that's illegal in that person's home state, say Alabama, whose law applies, who has jurisdiction over that dispute. And so um, states' rights can also create all kinds of headaches in those sorts of instances when um, states take quite different positions on questions like abortion. Um, but we, we've already seen some of this happening where progressive states, which traditionally I think have, have moved more to kind of codify rights that already exist, are instead trying to take steps to make abortion available um, to those outside of their state. And we, we've seen to some extent on the other side, conservative states like Texas's SB8, which allows um, literally anyone anywhere, including the three of us, if we liked, could sue someone performing an abortion in Texas or aiding and abetting someone who had done so. So the sort of extraterritoriality of um, fights about state abortion laws um, we're seeing, I think, from both progressive and conservative states. And I think it's, it's part and parcel of a, of a feeling, I think, among state governments that the federal government will not be able to or willing to settle um, conflicts about health care, including but not limited to reproductive health care in a satisfactory way. And so states have to then step into the breach. And we very much saw that uh, in the four years of the Trump presidency with COVID-19. We've seen that with reproductive health care. We've seen that with other forms um, of health care as well. And so I think that sort of thing will probably continue uh, in the years to come, I think, especially as the Republican Party uses the tools at hand to make it harder for progressives to access federal power. That was Gary Gerstle and Mary Ziegler discussing state government as a force for change in the American future. Federalism and the balance of power within the federal system are at the heart of American politics. We can't understand the history of the United States without taking into account the role of the state governments alongside that of the national government. Although the idea of states' rights has a dark history, federalism can offer advantages to the politically progressive, who can harness state power even when Washington is in the hands of their opponents. Thank you for listening to The Last Best Hope a podcast from the RAI at Oxford University that examines America from the outside in. The producer was Emily Williams, and I'm Grace Mallon. Goodbye.